What's up guys, this is Tony Angus. Welcome to Chat Time, where I have a conversation with interesting people about the world we live in and the things that matter to us most. Join me each week for a sometimes fun, sometimes controversial, sometimes enlightening, but always enjoyable chat. Today I'm talking with Paul Veldman. Paul is a former weapons and tactics instructor with Victoria Police and now runs a very successful martial arts organisation, Kendo Karate Australia. He's also the owner of the online martial arts advisory service, Martial Arts Business Success. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Give it up for Paul Veldman. All right, ladies and gentlemen, nice to see you all. I'm here with Paul Veldman. Paul, welcome. Thanks, mate. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. So uh, for those who are not familiar with Paul, Paul runs a very, very successful martial arts system, Kando Martial Arts, here in uh, the southeast of Melbourne, and also is the, what would you call yourself, the proprietor, the owner, the registered user, the franchisee? The owner, I guess. The owner of Martial Arts Business Success, which is a, um, uh, a group that looks at how to help businesses. It's like a, a business coaching and counselling service for martial arts groups. So, mate, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. Beautiful day here. I'm well. Beautiful day. Uh, so we were just chatting uh, before I pressed uh, record about the school and about, uh, you know, the people and all that sort of stuff. So there are a handful of things I'd like to cover today with you, but um, I really want to start with your martial arts journey. Can you just tell everyone, you know, what, why did you get into martial arts? Oh, by the way, before we go, Paul is also an ex-police member and weapons and tactics instructor and uh, ended up being up at the police, uh, the police training academy in Glen Waverley in Melbourne uh, as one of the uh, safety and tactics development team. So de- developed the training packages that the rest of us taught. So um, I'll throw that out there because I imagine we're going to end up into, the, you know, law and self-defence discussions somewhere along the way. So going back... Martial arts, why, for a start? You know, it's a good question. I started when I was about 13. Uh, I started with a, a club called Sanchikai. Um, so that's 36 years ago. That's a um, long time. And to be honest, you know, I, I, I can't think of any great reason why I wanted to do it. You know, I wasn't bullied. Um, there was probably no more to and fro than anyone else had back in that era. I think I just liked the idea of it. I, li- I liked the idea of the skill sets um, and... It was kind of a case of I said to mum, I'd like to start a martial arts up. And she said, no problem. You find somewhere you can walk to because both mum and dad worked. We'll pay your fees, but these are the jobs you've got to do. And there were really only two clubs within you know, five, seven kilometres back then. Um, and it was only a case of a karate or I think maybe a judo at the time. There wasn't mm. much around. Mm. So started up and just enjoyed it. Um, Probably like most people who've done for a long time, had some bits and pieces of downtime, uh, hit university after high school, did engineering, spent most of the time in the pub, probably dropped my training off a little bit then, um, picked it back up. It might have got better. Yeah, it got more interesting. So never really stopped. So I guess wave it up and down a little bit. Uh, went from a freestyle to a traditional karate, which is primarily what we do these days. Got introduced to some different things at the police force, um, some, some Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, some Filipino martial arts. So, you know, we, you and I were working together at the force response unit at the time and you'd gone to a training unit and said, come on over, you know, the, the weather's fine over here. And 
what it sort of morphed, you know, so going from a freestyle karate to a traditional karate that was kind of sports orientated. And then with, with the operations we used to do with the through with the West End, the brawl of and shifts and all the other bits and pieces, seeing the gaps that were there. Yeah. Um, probably too young at that stage to really analyse with the gaps there through lack of application, lack of knowledge, or was it just not appropriate? Looking back, what we were training was, was more the sports karate. The self-defence curriculum as such wasn't there, but there was also, you know, the, the, a traditional karate is self-defence. So met some BJJ guys and, and you know, Clarky was the first guy I met, uh, first day of the defensive tactics course, we're standing up having a little bit of a, 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 a balanced grapple. Next thing I know, I'm on the ground. He's knee riding me. He's making monkey noises on top of me. And I just remember thinking, you know, I'm, I'm four inches tall than this guy. I've probably got 20, 30 kilo on him. And I've got no idea what I'm doing down here. So two things. I'm going to kill him one day and I'm going to learn some of this stuff. And, and we became really good mates. Ended up working together. Um, but, but it sort of highlighted where the gaps were, where yeah. some of the gaps were. So our, our style of martial art can, though, if I'm totally honest, it's what I like doing. You know, I, I love the traditional martial art. I love the philosophy behind it. I love the discipline. You know, we get to wear our pyjamas to work. That's kind of cool. But I enjoy the, um, the, the ground defence. You know, I think anyone who says that they run self-defence has to have some knowledge on the ground, uh, which is why I, I don't have a, 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 like any particular reason for the flavours I do, but I train Gracie Jiu-Jitsu because I love the combatives. I'm only a white belt in it. I've been a white belt for a, a few years now. So, Coach Dave, if you're watching, I'm back at training soon as we're open again, mate. <laughs> um, we added some Filipino martial arts in there because I really enjoy it. I enjoy the knife work. I enjoy, I do think it's important to, if you're going to learn to defend against a weapon, you have to understand the limitations of the weapon. Of course. So, so playing with it helps with that. But again, you know, I, I love the stick work. I love that, just the, the whacking the sticks together and again, really getting that, that timing and, the, and just the pleasure of it. And so, what we decided to do was keep the core of the traditional karate, but bring a bit of this in and a bit of this in and a bit of this in. And it's kind of morphed over the years. The young guys who started off as you know, kids who are now actually club owners have been instrumental in helping to develop that. Um, there's some of them who are getting to be really good grapplers now, some who are getting right into the um, stuff like we work with the KEF, the kinetic fighting with Paul Carl, the Australian military system. So we've rolled some of that in. So it's a little bit of a hybrid, but it's come together in a nice way. You can almost see, can't you, that um, if you use the Kendo evolution, how martial arts got started in the first place, where you go back to the Shaolin temples and they were using it as more of a calisthenic type thing for fitness and health because they were, you know, meditating in the hills all their lives and eating small bowls of rice and they were becoming frail and ill. And so... Obviously, when they started this calisthenics idea through uh, Bodhidharma or Daruma, they start to become fit and then they get attacked and they end up defending themselves using whatever calisthenics they remember. And then, of course, the Shaolin temples are ransacked and, and laid waste. So you've got all these essentially, all these martial artists that they disband into different parts of China and over to Okinawa and Japan. But what they do is they move in with, they take with them the favoured parts of the art. And so they would end up, you know, you get your bigger solid guy who's not a great flashy kicker. He liked the grappling side of the calisthenic, whatever they were doing. And so he goes over there and starts to develop that and teach that. And there's your basis for your more grappling-based arts. Mm. 
then another guy over here, you know, who's really light and lean and flexible, he really enjoyed the kicking aspects because he could get his foot right up here. So when they disband, this guy goes to grappling, this guy goes and does kicking art. And that starts to morph into those, those sorts of high kicking arts, such as Taekwondo. And then, um, and then there are guys who are just good with their hands, could bob and weave, and they end up with more hand systems. And, uh, and then you get all your cranes and uh, Xing Yi and Bagua and all these mm. other. And there are guys that are more gravi gravitate to more internal arts and others that gravitate to being hit with sticks and boards because they were incredible control of their own pain systems or because they, as an instructor, thought that's what we need in addition to this training. We need to be really super tough, and thus you, you sort of end up with a Kyokushin or, or something like that. And you can almost see Kando happening that way as well, where you're going to get one of your schools is going to be amazing at the Filipino arts and knife fighting, and then you're going to get another one that kicks their shiny ass Absolutely. using BJJ, but pick up a knife, and, and they, that one's going to be going, I don't know anything about that, but this one's going to go, well, this is my domain, sunshine. And, yeah, it's a it's a fantastic and fascinating journey for the for the club. So just tell uh, the listeners how's your organisation at the moment? You've got six schools, is that right? Yeah, we've got six schools: uh, four full time, two two part time, one in a school hall, one in a, in a scout hall. Um, we're open again on Monday, so two days away, which is really cool. Right? Um, yep. So whenever this hits the airways, you know, uh, in Victoria. We've been closed down for three months effectively and we're back a um, little bit limited on some of the things we can do with with uh, adults in contact work but you know back on the mats is better than not back on the mats regardless of what we what we can and can't do yeah yeah so the, the club itself it's it's sort of interesting because it was never a, a deliberate growth um and you remember because it started the club when we were working together yeah um it was a case of we developed some some good leadership and instructors uh, along the way, and they just became too good. You know, almost too many alphas in the one pot um, to the point where some of the young guys said, "Look, can we open up a club?" I said, "Absolutely, you'd be you'd be phenomenal." Now, some of our guys are up in their mid to late twenties have never had a job outside of Kando. Yeah, two-edged sword sometimes. You know, really very very good at what they do. Um, would never say they don't appreciate that how lucky they are to be able to you know make a living off something they love. Mm. But haven't had that outside experience. So well, what's going to be interesting to me is because, without blowing too much smoke, you understand, because you've put them through a fairly intensive training program in in personal development and business development. You know, uh, we can't see on the on the recordings, but there's a whiteboard behind you there that's got ideas from previous meetings you've held. You've had business meetings with them. You've had finance meetings. You talk to them about customer service and delivery, systems delivery. You talk to them about leadership. You've got specific leadership programs. You're just applying those things to a martial arts group. Mm. But ultimately, what will happen, I think, if these guys ever leave, shh, don't tell them, they've, got, they've probably got a, a greater skill set for the things that matter in business in general than most people that would go through university and end up working over here and want to get to management positions because they have a head full of knowledge on this specific topic. So they're an accountant, they're a marketing person, they're, um, they have a business management. It doesn't lend itself to all the various things that go on when you run your own martial arts club, if you're going yeah. to run a successful one. 
Yes, and they are. They're, they're jack of all trades, and they've developed to the point. And, and, and we've actually got a couple of guys who were corporate um, and came and then gave up the corporate to run a club. Wow! So they bring a really nice, um, different view of things. Yeah. Because you know, as far as business goes, I was an alright policeman. <laughs> yeah, you know, right. I, had to, I had to learn along the way, like all of us. Yeah. Um, but the, the good thing is with the young guys, and I say young guys, like I said, they're up around you know, late, mid-late 20s now, so it's all relative, Yeah. is that they've, they've grown to such an extent that they contribute as much as anyone to the organisation. Ideas, concepts, um, you know, brainstorming things, looking at the pros and cons, any, any evaluations on new ideas I might come up with, they come up with their own ideas. So it's a really nice melding pot now where it's not just... It's not just a benevolent dictatorship. Yeah. Uh, it's it's more along the lines of a committee. I mean, I obviously have final say on curriculum, but there's such good instructors and such good guys and girls that you're comfortable to say, look, this is the parameter we work with, and you know, you know what our values are. Yeah. Go and do things. If you're not sure, run it by me. Yeah. But it's your business and your club, so you've got free reign. Oh, I really love that, and, and being able to have <clears throat> give them some free reign. And one of the things that we know in leadership is that when you deny people autonomy, then they tend to leave. And like you said, if they're operating under a benevolent di dictator, one of, that would be the major thing that would be missing from that, is you could be as benevolent as you like, but if they don't have some measure of autonomy, some say, some contribution to make, then they start to feel as though they're, they're being underutilised, and that's where they go, you know what, really I want to leave because... I think I can find somewhere else where I'm better utilised. Yeah. And, and it's not just about the money for them. I mean, they can all make good incomes, both yeah. clubs. No, no two ways about that. Yeah. But like you said, they need to have that freedom to make their own decisions. Otherwise, they're just a highly paid instructor that's taking all the responsibility of being a business owner. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, and I don't think we've ever had a problem where I've had an issue with what they've been teaching. Because they're, they're, they're smart guys, they're good martial artists, they're good with their safety and their health and safety. And they've had a really big input into the curriculum. Yeah. Now, when we revamped the curriculum, because like, I guess like a lot of styles, you know, we rediscovered what they used to do many, you know, many decades ago. As new things would come along, we'd say, that's really good. That's, that's great. That, you know, the groundwork's great. The weaponry's great. Where do we put it? Because we've got this belt system from the karate. So yeah. what we tended to do was we'd, we'd add it at the black belt end. And... Where are we going to put this? Let's add it at the black belt end. And these were really good techniques. And they weren't, they weren't black belt techniques. You're talking, you know, bridge and rolls, hip escapes, basic stuff, you know, white belt stuff, the BJJ or, or low-level Filipino stuff. Mm. So what we had was, if you imagine, like, when you, you buy your first house and it's a two-bedroom house and just you and your partner and it's everything you need. And then you have a, a kid and you need another bedroom. And then you have another kid, so you have another bedroom and a, and a rompus room. And then you get a couple of dogs, so you stand out in the backyard. So ultimately you have... In your house, you have everything you need, but the way it's laid out doesn't necessarily make sense or it's not the best way of doing it. And that's what our syllabus look like. We were sticking stuff here and there and everywhere. Yeah. So when we, we revamped it, probably every, we've been running 23 years, every 10 years, it's almost like we wipe the slate clean and, and reevaluate what's valuable, what's not. What have we learned along the way? And so the last time we did it, it was fantastic because we're pulling elements from um, the BJJ and from the, the KEFs and have some stuff from Krav Maga, some stuff from Muay Thai, because a lot of us were, were all cross-training in bits and pieces. We wrote all the techniques out and then rearranged them. Well, where should things go? And at this level, what's our, what's our outcome we want for this level? Yeah, that's it. And we decided at that what we call fundamentals, so the first three belt levels, at the end of that cycle, which would be around 12 to 18 months, we want a student to be solid in basic 
self-defense. That's right. If they progress from there, they start learning the more martial art side of things. Yeah. And by the time they go to the advanced class, it all rolls together. So we have someone who's, you know, hopefully healthier mind and body, who's um, who's reasonably athletic, depending on age and abilities, but who who can be solid with the self-defense and who understands environmental awareness, who understands situational awareness, body language, pre-technicators, but can do a ripper of a carter and can put some nice kicking combinations together. Yeah. So the whole package. It's yeah. it's interesting because it reminds me of uh, it reminds me of Kempo where um, we we have what Kempo is divided up into three learning phases: solid, liquid, and gaseous. Mm. And so they talk about um, uh, stages of motion. They are. And so in the early days, you're really learning that Japanesey. You want to be solid in your stances, bend your knees, fairly erect posture. You want to be able to travel and meet that force with force wherever it's coming from you want to deliver make make your fist good and solid and when you impact something it it makes an impact it hurts you want to have good posture while you're kicking curling curling your toes back for those front kicks being able to snap it out and hold it there and drop back to a good stance and then later as they move up into more sort of out of the white yellow orange belts they start getting into the mid-range purple blues and greens mm. Now they've got to be able to parry and wash things off and, and their, their actions can be circular. They've got to use open hand strikes, less as more a, a clubbing, but a slicing and, a, and a, an arcing and a flashing sort of way of doing it. And they've got to be able to become more liquid with the way they move. Mm -hmm. And then when they get into the browns and blacks, they have to be able to translate that into different directions. And so you're moving against multiple opponents and then we include weapons and ground. The ground stuff is all the way through, but yeah, so it's the same. It's the same sort of philosophy, which which is why I think it resonates really nicely with me because I go, I totally understand that. Also, the thing you're talking about that I really like is, if you end up in a one-on-one, -on -one, you've got good stand-up. So the hands will be good. The kickboxing, the Muay Thai, Krav, and the the Kendo stuff will mean that they can just fight. So they can throw good punches. They can parry and block and move and trap and do all the things that we do stand up. But because you've moved now into some more judo grabs, clinches and takedowns and then BJJ, you've got that, um, that element covered as well. Mm. But you've got the street stuff because there are knives pulled and uh, improvised weaponry and things like that that you need to be able to work with as well. And that's very much the way we think as well. It's just... We, you're not going to see too many samurai swords and sai swords and three-sectional staff in the street anymore, but you're going to see somebody pick up a, a bottle and smash it and go, righto. Yep. You're going to have somebody pick up a glass and, and go to smash you in the face, and there's a lot of screwdrivers and box cutters and knives in the community uh, more than ever, and it's not getting less over the journey, so that has to be added into the training. So I just think that you've uh, whether you did that intentionally to end up there you've ended up in a really good mix i think ultimately that was our goal to get there and, and like anything it's always morphing yeah um, and you know one of our philosophies on knife defense for example is we want the students to understand enough about knives that they don't want to deal with a knife well yes absolutely so that's it. We're, not, we're not espousing hey you know you've done this like, we, we have firearm disarms yeah. you know, yeah. stuff we use to teach them the police force yeah the day you find yourself in that situation is the day you, you know things are done and shit yeah <laughs> So, 
but maybe one day. Now, it can be a fun thing to teach, but there's always that underlying serious. Uh, you know, we were talking before the, we started the, the, the rolling about the incident that happened in Melbourne a couple of days ago with that yeah. girl being beaten up. So for me, that's a reinforce. And I think we can all get a little bit blasé. You know, I'm, I'm just, just south of 50. I haven't really had any serious encounters for quite a few years now. But every now and again, you know, you get a little bit of a, a verbal or a, you know, a, a close encounter, maybe a street thing or a shopping centre or car park. And it just reminds you why you train. Because I love what we do. I love the camaraderie. You know, I love the art form. But there's this, uh, there is this underlying do this because it's serious. So one of the things that Paul's mentioned is that there was a young 15-year-old girl attacked on the trains here by a handful of other girls from... Uh, Another nationality. It doesn't matter who who's doing what to whom. What matters is that there was a 16-year-old girl attacked by people of a different skin colour than her. And it was obviously a racial thing spurred on by the racial uh, riots, etc., that have, that have occurred in the United States. So it's incredibly sad, but it does highlight that with racial tensions or any other tension, when, when society... And we're coming out of a tense time with COVID and people are angry and they're frustrated, uh, a lot of businesses have failed, there are a lot of people living on a lot less income than they were, there's a lot of struggle city. People are already tense. So society being tense, you're going to see a lot more tense outcomes to things. People are walking that knife edge and likely to snap any second. There's never been a better time to advertise for martial arts training because for a number of reasons. First of all, the physical training. Get yourself tired get yourself sweaty and relieve yourself of that, 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 that burden of extra energy and anger. There's the first thing. Get, and even if you don't do martial arts, you join a gym, go for a lot of running. Get yourself on a rower or a, a bike. Get rid of that toxic, fermenting um, upset that we're all carrying with us. Second thing, of course, is the discipline not to involve and engage people in a meaningless way and I liked it that you've kept the traditional elements of respect like you said you're still in, still wearing the pajamas there's still that bowing and respect to each other at the beginning and end of class there's still that main, maintenance of discipline that is so required in society in general so there's a discipline to avoid I like also as well that you've pulled in conflict management aspects to your training and we'll get to that soon but then there's also the, uh, the ability to look after yourself if all else fails. And martial arts really is the only thing that teaches that. Because mm. people will say, you know, oh, well, that's why we have concealed carry in the United States. And they're quite right that if there's a gun, someone with concealed carry is instantly worthwhile. But what about those previous aspects? Nothing about concealed carry stops them from walking around with that tension and anxiety, nothing about concealed carry gives them the discipline not to engage with people mm -hmm. in tense moments and not to become threatening themselves. Um, and nothing about concealed carry gets them to choose the best and most appropriate tactical option under a threat. Well, you remember the Project Beacon days. Project um, Beacon is a classic. Really, yeah, broad base. Um, Victoria Police, where we both worked, um, went through a phase where we shot and killed 22 people, 22 people in a year. 
Now, it coincided with uh, a lot of psychiatric institutions being deinstitutionalised and, and a lot of people being back out on the street who, who needed care, shouldn't have been on the street. So there was a lot of suicide by police. Um, there were a lot of confrontation situations. There was no police member found by the coroner or courts to have been guilty of doing it. Correct. But what they looked at, and, and rightly so, was, yes, you were justified in taking your action, but could you have done something else? You know, and, and Victoria Police... You know, I love my time there. Um, like any institution, it's always learning and morphing. If you remember the early days where they went out and looked around the world, all the different packages, and they went, well, that's, that's kind of expensive and time-consuming and, you know, taking members off the road. Let's teach them how to use firearms really well. And they did, because we, we actually shot at and fired less shots than any other state in Australia. Correct. We were just better shots then. They just hit what we were aiming at. Correct. Mm. But then we didn't have the other options. And so... Project Beacon came about where they retrained the whole police force over five days to look at other options. And we used to have the, I can't remember, the, the use of force scale that was linear. Continuum. That was it, the continuum. That was a linear continuum. You know, officer presence, verbals, stances, empty hand, um, less than lethal, lethal. And, and it doesn't work that way. It no. ends up being the wheel of fortune. So one minute you're talking, the next minute it's, it's game on. It's on, yeah. So that, that giving people the option and the confidence to use options is, is vital. And like anything, it swung back the other way a bit too hard. Mm -hmm. um, we were not allowed to run scenarios that would involve the officer pulling a gun because that might encourage them to pull a gun. Mm. Yeah, and obviously on the cold face of training, we were, I guess, hamstrung sometimes by what we were allowed to do um, with policy, but overall, the, the, I felt the training was good. And it's like, I agree. It's like being a martial artist. You know, we talk about the three, three rough spheres of training. You know, your pre- your chaos factor and your post. So the pre-encounter, mm. you know, body language, situational awareness. How many times you watch these videos where you see a guy sitting there on his phone or on the station on the phone and, and, and you watch the guy come up. Now, how easy to debrief from the safety of a computer screen. But you're thinking, it's almost like the horror movies. Look behind you and the music starts. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> so and you're looking and going, well, where's the guy's awareness? that he's got his headphones in or he's on his phone at the train station, especially in some of these areas. Well, this is the first thing, isn't there? We, you would tell you people don't go into public areas with the hoodie on, glasses on, sunnies on, and, and your headphones on because yeah. you are now out of tune with the environment. Yeah, and because that's the theoretical approach. In theory, I should be able to walk down, not that you want me doing this, walk down Main Street, Dandenong, which is a little bit of a rougher area for us, wearing a mankini with $50 notes stuck in it, you know, Okay, I should be arrested for doing that, granted. Yeah, let's <laughs> but, go there for a sec, yeah. It's not. But we should be safe because the law says we should be safe doing that. But you know it's stupid. You know, there's places where even being you know, experienced with stuff and being reasonably well-trained, I would not go at night by myself. And I should be able to, but I can't. I should be able to, uh, I remember once with my daughter, who's um, you know, a great little martial artist. She's only, she's only little, um, so she takes into account. We were, we were talking about the... Um, a little bit about the women's movement and about the Me Too movement and just some bits and pieces. So not getting into that. And we were down at a shopping centre. As we went to, to step out onto the road to cross, a car's come through the ped crossing, just gone boom, through. And she was kind of giving me the dirty look. And I said, why didn't you walk out of there? And she's looking at me like I was stupid because it was a stupid question. She goes, what do you mean? I said, why didn't you step out there? She goes, because the car wasn't stopping. I said, but you had right away. She goes, but I wouldn't have died. Yeah. yeah, that's right. <laughs> so exactly, and that's that's a concept of self-defense. Just because you can do it doesn't mean you should do it. Correct. Uh, and that's that awareness of going, no, no, I'm allowed to do that. Yeah, but 
not everyone plays by your rules. It's funny because I use this analogy, that exact same analogy when I'm discussing, because occasionally in a conflict management class, where I'm talking about, you know, using good communication strategies and, uh, you know, win-win philosophy, et cetera, and you'll get somebody who say, are you telling me that this person comes in frothing and, and abusing me and I'm supposed to be nice to them? And then they'll add in things like, I don't come to work to be abused. I have the right not to be threatened. And they're right, but it's, but it's exactly the same discussion as you just made, which is you have the right to step on that zebra crossing because cars should stop for you. Mm. But if you see a car that is clearly not going to stop for you and doesn't care about your rights in that moment, <clears throat> it's unsafe to paddle on about your rights. What's safe is to not exercise your rights in that moment. Mm -hmm. And so in conflict situations, it works exactly the same way. Regardless of your rights in that moment, what's the safe thing to do when someone's frothing and, and making threats? It isn't to stamp your feet and scream about your rights. No, and I, I think I actually stole this saying from you. Um, I remember you teaching this. It'll be the, rubbish then. <laughs> it's, it's done right over the years. The firefighter doesn't negotiate with the fire. Correct. He puts it out. Then you go back and look at why it started and what we can do to prevent it. But you've got to deal with, you know, prioritise what's happening. Right now, this customer's angry and I would really prefer it they don't punch me in the face. So let's step back, let's do some communication, let's yeah. move if we have to, yeah. and then let's talk about the right to be safe at work. Yeah, and, and that conversation happens away from the angry person. That's a conversation you have with management about what led to, and, and with the person potentially who, once they've settled down, once their behaviour is such that you can communicate, you're not gonna, certainly not going to have that conversation while they're amped up. But you can have it with your manager about, why was the access granted to this person? Why did they just blow past reception? Correct. Why was I pointed out as the one to approach when that person was angry? What, what were the circumstances in terms of the human intervention, the environmental stuff? I always use the acronym HEAT. Human, environmental, administrative, and technological. What, what are all those things? One of those or more of those must be that Swiss cheese model where there's holes in the Swiss cheese and something's got to get through all of them in order to make an impact. Well, it's found a hole in those four things, that human environment, administrative and technological, to make an impact. That's when I go back and plug the holes. But I'm not going to plug the holes while I'm talking to an angry person because mm -hmm. that's when you get smacked in the mouth, regardless of what your rights are. Um, so that, that's an important conversation to have with you guys. Yeah, well, Steph, one of the managers here, you know, she's been with me since she was a kid training. She's now a full-time manager. She's nice. phenomenal. Yeah. You know, great little martial artist, top instructor, run basically, don't tell her. She, she runs the place. She's the boss. Um, she was working at one of the clubs once and the guy's come in, down on his luck, looked at quite, you know, it, it turns out he actually just got out of prison. Right. Someone's given him an address to go to the Selvos to pick some stuff up and he's gotten himself lost. So he's come in drunk, irate, and there's Steph, you know, five foot two, 55 kilo ring and wear, talking to this guy. She's done a brilliant job. Well, we do the conflict management. She skipped the desk between him and her. He went one way, she took the other. He wasn't aggressive towards her. He was kind of aggressive and annoyed in general. Talked to him, got him a bottle of Gatorade out of the fridge. Nice. Looked up where the Salvo thing is. And she said, you know, I remember you telling us about the, um, the guy at the coffee shop. Yeah. Offering the, the drink. That's right. And so, you know, that sort of clear-headedness 
from from someone who's young you know obviously regardless of the fact she trains you know this is a big guy big strong guy yeah that's what we want in our students we yeah. want that that environmental awareness to to fall back into that training and be you know and obviously if you don't do it all the time it's got to be cognitive rather than yeah. than instinctive but just that that ability to think on your feet and look for alternatives i think this is the beautiful part about um and you kind of you, you kind of hit on the point just then about it's not going to be instinctive. We tend in martial arts clubs, if we go back to your three, uh, your Venn diagram where there's the, the pre-conflict, then there's the chaos component, and then there's the post-conflict circle. Mm. We tend to make that chaos circle and we hammer people to get that instinctive and we make that the instinctive part. And then we say, just be aware of the pre and the post. Whereas if you can make that conflict communication and that environmental awareness and that amazing customer service that you were talking about where she had the presence of mind to say, you know, if I offer this guy something in the moment and if I do all these things, talk to him in this way but maintain my distance and be aware of things around me, if, that, if we could make that as instinctive almost as we make our martial arts, you probably find that we would remove much of the need to find ourselves in the chaos. Yeah, we might put ourselves out of a job. Yes, yeah, so it's, it's we want to do it in a perfect world. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I think it, it's incumbent upon, I think it's incumbent upon all martial arts schools and organisations to at least include the pre-conflict in their conversation and there are packages available. If you're not sure about the packages, uh, martial arts clubs, you're welcome to come and see me. Uh, get onto Mabs through Paul. But um, there are packages available to teach their students about this dynamic because here's the deal. I think there would be nothing better than, nothing worse for your brand. I say nothing worse, that's not the case. But it would be damaging to your brand to have one of your black belts go and get beaten up. Mm. But... The, the simple truth is that regardless of how good you are, there's always someone better. And so there is every likelihood that they will find themselves in an altercation and not win that altercation. So, you know, it, it's, it's, I think, very valuable discussion about how do we not get into that in the first place? And then if we have to, okay, let's go into the chaos sphere because they've force that on me mm. uh, i've tried my best and it just hasn't worked okay then fair enough but to say that somebody has said step outside mate and you've gone no worries i'm a black belt i'll sort this out well hang on <laughs> yeah bow, bow. so let's go back one step and go did you have other options and this is what you were talking about in that tactical options model the wheel of fortune is that we must have at least an understanding of what our options are in any moment. Yeah, and the maths is so different. I mean, this is where, in a way, we're lucky. We know, working so many years in the police force, we've been there where things just don't work. Yeah. And, you know, the, the, the famous saying, everyone's got a plan. Yeah, so that's the right. The first shot's a fight or we get punched in the punched, face. That's right. Um, so we've been there and we've seen things not work. And we, we've worked out why they will work, you know, the tactical advantage. And let's face it, with, with the house raids we used to do and, and stuff, it's really a lot of it's based on surprise and overwhelming force. Correct. Now you have a look at most street fights when the when the, you know, the good guy, the victim, gets clocked and knocked out. 
it's usually because of surprise and overwhelming force. Yes, that's right. So there's that there's a commonality there. And as a as a teacher, you know, you teach you guys how to avoid these situations, and hopefully you do. But then you're left with that quandary. Well, we say we teach them self defence, but my students haven't had a real fight, or you know, very little exposure to it, and now they're teaching people. So and and again, yeah, where do you where do you say it's untested? And I believe, and, and Ben Hamilton, hopefully one day we'll have a chat with him on the show. Yeah, that'd be good. Has a great way of explaining it. I won't try to, to, to paraphrase him because I'll, I'll muck it up. But bottom line is, for him, it's about pressure testing. So, you know, you start the students at a level and then you build them up and build them up and build them up. But at some stage, you know, short of taking a ride on the train to, you know, as a practical you know, part of your black belt, yeah. you've got a pressure test. You've got to put the Spartan suit on. Um, you know, you've got, to, you've got to put them under pressure when they're in that, that heart rate zone. They can't get their breath and they're feeling overwhelmed. You know, yeah. Where do you dig into? What do you fall back on? Yeah. And this is, and, and again, speaking as, as a white belt BJJ, so with no, no authority on it at all, but it's one of the things that as a concept I love about it, it's very pure. Yes, it is. You, you got tapped, you didn't get tapped. Maybe you stalemated each other. You know, there's no woulda, coulda, shoulda. There's no, the old, the old days in the tournaments where everything was you know, hard in the stand-up stuff. I remember my mum came and watched one tournament ever. I hit a bloke with a hook kick, broke his nose. He got a warning for disregarding his own safety. Okay. It was fantastic. It was the good old days. <laughs> but, you know, that, that, that shot had to hit. Yeah. And so, you know, your Muay Thai, your full contact, your Kyokushin, your BJJ, your MMA, there's a defined outcome that there's, that there's an honesty to it. Yes, that's right. Now, I've got nothing against tournaments where it's non-contact or light contact because that's kind of a, it's, it's, a, it's a thing it's legit but it's not self-defense yeah you know because you're not tested you don't know what it feels like to get hit you know you don't know that first crack that you take and, and the world wobbles you know where yeah. do you go there you know you score a point on him but he doesn't stop because the referee didn't call it that's right yeah so, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and i know it's sort of bumblebee affecting this conversation oh no but they're interesting things so, so as an instructor how can you pressure test you guys how can you make them as safe as possible yeah by the same token, you've got mates who run sports karate clubs or sports taekwondo clubs who don't do self-defence. That's okay. It is because okay. They're not, because they're not telling people they do self-defence. They're doing Olympic taekwondo or they're doing um, WKF sports karate, and that's their focus. And their focus is the tradition. And you touched on it before, you know. The question is not what's the best martial art. No. The question is what's the best martial art for you? Yeah, for you, your, your desire, your requirements your environment. I mean, obviously, you know, for um, Krav Maga, for example, was born of a need to have a militaristic, simplistic response to combat situations. So it, it has a focus and it's completely legit within that environment. Take Krav Maga, put it in an MMA environment and it might struggle. Take it and put it in a BJJ environment and it would struggle put them in a Taekwondo tournament, they would struggle. So it's about what environment you want to exist in. Where do you find? And I have no problem with people that choose to do a disciplined, traditional karate for the discipline, the self-control, the focus, the balance, and the fitness. I've no problems with that. None whatsoever. I've got no problems with people doing Taekwondo for the flexibility the kicking, the fitness, no problem. And for tournaments, I've got no problem with that. I've got no problems with people doing boxing, with people doing it. I don't have a problem with anything. MMA, I, I enjoy them all in whatever, but don't label yourself something you're not. Mm. 
And I really like the idea that you just said about Taekwondo schools, your Olympic Taekwondo, your goal is the Olympics. Don't say you're going to go onto the street and be wonderful at defending yourself against multiple opponents on the street when your primary arsenal is kicks because, you know, there is a field of thought and this might be a bit contentious. I'm not putting down Taekwondo. I've just built it up in a way. But obviously, you know, high head high kicks against someone who might drop and shoot and take you down is not really the, the most effective option. And so there so, has to be at least that thought process of how would this translate to the street. And that's the idea. At least show, if you're going to call yourself self-defense, at least show that you have that thought process within the training. Mm. But also then, you know, again, if you're saying you're self-defense, you have to then say the, the Venn diagram. Because mm. Mr. Parker, the guy that started Kempo that I do, and he was the, the master, he was the, what they call him the father of American karate. And uh, because he sort of was the first sort of white guy, one of the first to, to open a, a commercial karate studio in the United States. And, um, but one of the things he says, and, and he's, there's plenty of footage of him showing it. And he says, throw a punch. And he, he says, okay, somebody's asked him at a, a tournament or a, a television interview, what is self-defense? He'll get the guy, one of his guys, to stand up and throw a punch, and he just turns and he just walks out the door. Yep. Because ultimately, self-defense is about not being struck. It's not about what you do to them. It's about what you avoid having done to you. Yeah. My BJJ coach, um, Dave Christick, says it really well. The goal is Nice plugs. That's for you, Dave. <laughs> the goal of self-defense is not to win the fight. It's to stop the other guy winning the fight. Yes, that, that's self-defense. And, and however you go about that becomes legitimate. Mm. If you can talk your way out of it, that then is self-defense. And there's a problem there because you, you talk to martial artists about talking your way out of something. And we, we, you know, drop beautiful phrases on them like live to fight another day and all that stuff. Oh, gee, it's hard because you're, this is where the clash happens between what is a great philosophy and a great ego because the two are meeting like this in the middle, aren't they? Mm. I, and also, I think one of the things that you were talking about earlier, a legitimate request from martial artists is to feel as though they're worthy of the, that, the black belt they've earned. And they go, hey, but how do I know? How do I don't feel like? And so it's, it's not necessarily pressure tested all the time. And what's and a black belt? It's, it's just a recognition in your style. Your correct. Of where you're at. You know, you have black belts at some at some styles in two years. You have black belts, other styles in 10 years. It doesn't matter. It's no. just a ranking in your own style. There's no real cross-correlation between the two. And there's no street cred to that. There's no, because if, if uh, you line up a black belt, let's just say first down, first degree, from a bunch of different styles, and then you take them down into those back, back blocks of Dan and Ong, where you talked about earlier, and you say, righto, it's 11 o'clock at night. You know this is tough. How comfortable do you feel on your own? Let's go. Some of them are going to say, hell no. Others are going to say, yeah, I, I probably reckon I've got the skill. Bravado aside. But the pressure testing is the, the individual art is about what do you want to achieve in your art, not about does that gang look at you and your black belt and go, yes, he's worthwhile. We won't go near him. You know, they, they're, they're not recognising art they're probably laughing at the black belt and going, 
and a key point you said there is they, because how many of the recent assaults have you seen where it's a step up one on one? Yeah, no, none. It's just a small thing. I don't care how good you are. You get four or five guys jump you. Yep. You want to be looking for a way out. That's right. You said it earlier. It's a shock and awe that, that that's what they're doing. They're coming out of nowhere. They'll they'll land the first blow, and then while you're dealing with your ringing head, your possibly bleeding nose, your dizziness, your um, disorientation, they're now landing subsequent blows. And this is one of the reasons why in the pre-conflict that environmental awareness is so important because it's, it's all very well when we go into a martial arts studio, we line our students up and we say, we're going to this now. We're going to practice against someone who's throwing a right-handed punch. You know what's coming. And not only that, we're not saying you're going to practice that right-handed punch after I've thrown a left to hit you. So it, it's, uh, you know, we, we do find ourselves in a very sterile environment and we have to be honest about that. Now, speaking of which, these policing is, in a way, a different environment again because they go out knowing that they've got a radio that can call other people to their, to their aid immediately, within, quite often within seconds, usually within a couple of minutes. And you come up code nine, which in Victoria Police is... Uh, code for officer needs assistance you come up code nine coppers will drop what they're doing to turn up to help you mm. and and that's wonderful and that's the the brotherhood the camaraderie you're talking about earlier and it's one of the things that police typically miss when they quit when they resign so i've got but not only that i've got all the accoutrements so nowadays modern policing have got vests they've got um even right down to the uniform that they wear is more designed for street uh, comfort and for dura street durability. Are you saying you miss the white caps and the uh, light blue shirts? Yeah. So the uh, <laughs> yeah, I do. I do so miss those uh, lovely white uh, caps. That's the best thing they came through, wasn't it? With baseball caps. When yes. Good. Well, I really was a fan when they brought in the baseball cap because it's so much more functional. I get the, the roofing nail. I get that for sun protection. I totally understood that. But um, the, the ball cap is a, is a great way of doing it. But the wash and wear pants and the, uh, the more durable shirts and the vest. And now on that vest, there's capsicum spray and maybe capsicum, capsicum foam. There's tasers. There's a firearm on your thigh. There's a baton. So you now have these less than lethal options. You're taught now to communicate, to have environmental awareness, and you've got a partner doing exactly the same thing. So you really, if you're coordinated, you've got 180 degrees to worry about because your partner can worry about the other 180. So you've halved, you've halved your environmental awareness requirement and you're carrying all this other stuff. So it's in a different environment, but mm. then they've also got a lot of weapons that they, and they're purposefully sent into troubled spots. So policing is a whole different ball game and training coppers was different. Which brings me to the point, what was going on in the George Floyd arrest? What was that all about? We're going there? I, we're going there. I, I, because I, I, I don't promise that we're not going to be controversial, ladies <laughs> and gentlemen. No, no, I promise I'll give you my personal opinion. Yeah. Um, this is a little stub table. It does not reflect can they much last management. <laughs> yeah. uh, look, honestly... There's, there's too much, I mean, all right, where do I start? As a, as a white Australian, I can't claim to understand the feelings. Good point. Can't claim to. Can't, 
can, can only relate. look at things from my point of view. Can't relate. Right. Um, what I saw was a crooked cop, a, a cop that a cop that was a bully. I saw a cop that, and again, my opinion, who I think had backed himself into a corner, was not going to do what everyone was telling him to do. Everyone's saying, get off him, get off him, get off him. And he was not going to listen to them because he had, he had his back up. You know, the ego was in the way. Regardless of the history of George Floyd, who cares? Oh, you know, yes, he's a criminal. Yes, you know what? No, no doubt he's not a good person. Who cares? They've got to deal with that situation. That, that knee right across his neck was not... What should have happened? There was no need for him to be there. And you you noticed this as well. We spoke about this. Hands in pockets, looking at the, the, the weight shift. That's right. Across his neck. Seesawing almost. Yeah. And we used to do that with each other when training and, and you know, when a handcuffing and we put it across the tricep and we torture each other. Of course. Because it freaking hurt. <laughs> so that, that weight shift, in my opinion, was deliberate. He yeah. was teaching the guy a lesson. Yeah, that's right. You know, I don't know what brought him there. I don't know the history of the of, of the copper. I know it's a bit checkered as well. But for me, take race out of it. Yeah, that was just wrong. Well, I think here's the deal. For me, take everything out of it because you lose the I am and here's my history the moment you put the police uniform and the cap on because now you are I am a cop. Mm. And once you're I am a cop, you are beholden to legislation, regulation, policy and procedure that none of which says your use of force must follow all of these principles unless the guy's an armed robber, unless the guy has a history of criminal activity, mm. unless you don't like him or colour of his skin. Nothing in the use of force says in order to pay him a lesson, teach him a lesson. Nothing in it says that. And so regardless of your understanding of the guy's character, regardless of any verbal exchange that might have taken place between you and he, regardless of any antecedents to this moment, you are bound, duty bound, by legislation, regulation, policy, and, and I would like to oath think you took and the oath uh, and the oath you took. Thank you. And, and I would like to think and the training you undertook. I'm not sure how that goes over there. And so uh, I know that uh, I've noticed on social media. So uh, that's not your best judge of, well, anything. <laughs> uh, but I've noticed a lot of people speaking up in support of this officer saying, you know, oh, there's a big ruckus around his activities. What about Floyd's history? And it's, so it seems to me there's a lot of misunderstanding of what policing is in the first place. Mm. And I would hate to think that that misunderstanding actually is rattling around in the brains of trained officers because it's fairly clear. And if it was me teaching them, there would be that tremendous dividing line between what you want, because I don't really care. Mm. At the end of the day, what you want matters as that when you put the uniform on now it's what the police force wants what uh, and, and whatever authority that they exist under so whether it's a mayor or the da or or mm -hmm. if it's a local council or whoever whoever's but yeah you don't you don't you are not an individual anymore yes you might wear a name tag and you go home to your wife and kids or husband and kids or whoever you go home to you are a police officer at that moment the end 
And when you wear the blue, you represent every other police officer. Correct. And he was, was he representing you when he was kneeling on that guy? Oh, no. It was outside the bounds. And, and look, I don't know the justification why they could say why one thing was they had him in the car, they took him out, they put him on the ground. Again, I think it's just ego. I think the guy's ego's backed him into a corner. I, you know, I, I, I've got no doubt he did not mean to kill him. Yes, no, I, I agree. I don't think he did. But, man, responsibility for actions. This is, and this is the thing, this is my big thing, yep. is take responsibility for your actions. And I want to play, you know... It's, it's holier than thou. Yeah, look, black lives don't matter. I firmly believe every lives matter. And I see the posts and the comments where if you say that, you're racist. Bullshit. Yeah, that's right. You know, I've, I've, we've fostered, my wife and I have fostered kids for years, and at least half of them have been Indigenous or Islanders. Yep. So I'm not playing any racist card. The statistics don't back up what a lot of people are getting angry about. Yeah, that's right. You know, the, the police shooting statistics don't back up that, that African-Americans are being targeted. But that doesn't mean there's not a, a culture there. I mean, it was only in the what, 1960s it was still legal to be racist. It's disgusting. Correct. Yeah, correct. And, and, and don't say that we don't have a problem and we haven't had a problem in Australia. We, we did and we have. But my opinion is that it's not necessarily at the policing end. It's why are, some, why are the African-Americans indigenous, but why are they so misrepresented in numbers? There's a problem earlier that we need to solve or we need to get to the bottom of. It's absolute in Australia. It's not a perfect system. It, no. It's pretty good. It's not perfect. You know, these guys, it's all very well to say everyone's got equal opportunity, but when you're starting 100 metres back yes. from the start line, yes. you're still not going to win the race. Isn't that a wonderful uh, bit of footage where that guy gathers people onto the, at a park oh, yes, and yes. starts them and, yeah, and then he says, uh, step two paces forward if you're white. Step two paces forward if you have... Um, if your mum and dad are still together, step two paces forward if you went through high school and another two if you went through university and, 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 and yeah. to the point where, spread. to the point where there are people who are 50 yards down the line in a hundred yard race. Now, you can say to your family, why would that together, why would husband and wife being together matter more to white people than black well because systemically there are we know that there are a larger divorce rate and because of financial stress placed on uh, the african-american community there are things like that um it's an interesting thing and, and today's wasn't about going in this direction but systemic racism is is something that most of us don't understand um, but I was reading the other day about Harvard University. And so Harvard University have a percentage of people that are allowed in and given preference because their grandfather or their great-grandfather was an alumni and now contributes $100,000 a year or something to Harvard. Now, go back, grandfather, how many of those were black? Mm. Zero. Exactly, yep. they were, uh, a, they didn't let them in. B, most of them couldn't afford to get into Harvard. So every alumni is an old white guy. They didn't even let women in. So discrimination was broad. It favoured white guys. So we know women have screamed about this for ages. But what's interesting is that then their, their um, ancestors now get a privilege. They can go into Harvard because they're great their grandfather or great-grandfather went to Harvard and contributes money to Harvard. Mm. Now, if that's not available to black people because of history, 
that's a system that was placed that because people who graduate Harvard get the jobs. Mm. So if you get somebody who graduated from the, you know, University of Tumbleweed, he might come out smarter than the guy who graduated Harvard, but Harvard's got the name. And so he goes for the job, he gets the bigger job, he ends up an executive, this guy's struggling. Yeah. You know, there's systemic racism. So and look, in Australia, what I would like to see is more education. And not yeah. education of any particular, but you know what? Let's let's put Australian history in absolutely system, but not just you know, like we're gonna catch and cook. Yeah, you that's know, right. Let's go back. Let's look back at the rich culture that we've got from, from the Indigenous people in Australia. Let's look back at their their traditions, the way they live with the land, and let's yeah, let's get to that point where it's not all that finished because we screwed it up in, you know, engineerically. Let's look at what changed. What can we put together? You know, how can we recognise that? How can we start to move past? Because you can't do it in one or two generations. No, it's only one or two generations ago that there was still big issues. There was still it was still blatantly unfair. Correct. So, but the stuff that's going on at the moment, you know, the the riots, the the the, the some of the protests, uh, I think to a certain extent hijacked by people's yeah. agendas. Yeah. But there's also some very passionate people there, generally younger people. Yeah. Who are very passionate about doing the right thing, but are not educated. And on yep. the same side of things, there's on the other side of the fence. There's people who say, no, that's not right. The numbers don't support that. It's not just the numbers. And that's my beef, I think, is when, when police in general get tarred with this brush. Yeah. Because right. of some, you know, guys like in America or even in Australia. Yeah. There's a problem there that needs to be addressed. It's easy to say, let's all just be nice and let's, mm. you know. Easy doesn't equate to simple. I think it's too flippant to say that. I think it's too... I think it doesn't address the underlying tension, the, the um, deep resentment that is, that is felt by many people who continue to live in a, uh, in a, a way that uh, is not supported by the society that they, that they live in. And I find it really interesting because when you, when you read up a lot about it, you'll hear stories of black people going to war for the country that wouldn't allow them to vote for the country that didn't allow them to live in an area for a country that didn't allow them to educate in the same schools for a country that wouldn't allow them to walk on the same side of the road as a white person that wouldn't allow them to eat in certain restaurants that wouldn't allow them to go to certain bathrooms. And yet they, they're expected to go and die for that country. Muhammad Ali. Why? Muhammad Ali. And, and you know what, as you said before, and I think we both agree on, we don't really understand. No, we don't. Because we come from a, one, we come from a fantastic country. We come from a great culture and we haven't been subjected to it. We don't get it. We can look at it from outside the glass yeah. and say, that's wrong. Yeah. But it's never directly affected us. And that's why, you know, I'm absolutely sympathetic to, to the whole system. That's right. But it also frustrates me watching people hijack it for their own ends. And, you know, and especially my big thing at the moment, the protests that happened in Melbourne and across Australia the last, last few weeks. 100% protest, you have every right to protest. Yeah. But now when we're trying to get through a pandemic. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, oh yeah. To me that's selfish. Yeah, I just think that, um, you know, we're, you were given the right to protest to allow your voice to be heard through a ministerial process that goes to government. That the whole idea is to get your beef put before the people that can make policy change at the highest level. 
why does that mean? In what way am I more effective by making sure that guy's shop front is completely destroyed and making sure that it costs him tens of thousands of dollars to get his business back in? But I don't think anyone's going to argue that's about the movement. Yeah. Look, I've got two young boys, and well, young boy, they turned 18 on yes. the weekend. They're teenagers. You know what? They're a little mouthy occasionally. They're, um, they're certainly they're very hyper aware of, of what they think is right and wrong. Yes. And that will often put them in trouble. What I've tried to get across to them is if you find yourself in a confrontation with police, police are not always right. Don't always work off the facts. They're people. They'll make mistakes. They'll be emotional. On the street is not the time to sort it out. No. Because they have no choice but to win. Correct. So you shut your mouth. If they say get on the ground, you get on the ground. If they say, okay, give me your name and address, you give them name and address. We will sort out that part of the right or wrong later on. Yeah. And it might be, um, it might be at the police station. It might be you have your day in court. Yeah. It might be that you put a complaint in through uh, the Ombudsman or Internal Affairs. Yeah. There's a process that should be followed. And I guess also, you know, if you feel that process doesn't back you up, there's a frustration there. But this is not the time. There are channels, though, at least, you know, because there's, like you said, there are there are levels that you can take it because, you know, if you didn't like what a couple of senior connies did at the local, then you can go to the sergeant. If that doesn't work, you can go to the senior sergeant uh, in charge of the station. If that doesn't work, you can go up further in the district. Then you can go across to uh, uh, police uh, ethical standards division or internal investigations, whatever you guys operate under. Then you can go to the ombudsperson. Then you can go to the ministerial office. There are channels, there are ways, but the stupidest way is with the Connie senior Connie, whose role he believes in that moment is to arrest you for a crime he believes or suspects you of committing. If that's what's going to happen, that's going that's what's going to happen whether or not you're bruised. Correct. And so your best bet is to save yourself of bruises because it's going to happen. And you trying to get away, depending how you go about that is going to then get you further injured. But circling back on that to George Floyd, we talk about the wheel of fortune and the tactical options model. When a person gets to a stage where they're handcuffed and on their face on the ground, what is what are the police concerned about in that very moment that requires them to place any weight on them? Because here's the deal. They would say, yes, but he can get up and run away still. Well, hang on. With your hands cuffed behind your back and from your stomach, it's going to take a live youngster five seconds to get to his feet. Mm -hmm. And it's not like your brain's going, oh, wait, is he standing up? Hey, he's pulled his legs under him. He's up onto his knees. Dang it, he's on his feet and running away. Something has intervened in that moment to say, hey, get back down. So it's easy dealt with. It's not like it required them to pin him on the floor. They could have sat him against the wheel of the, the, the car or in the gutter mm -hmm. and just stood with him. And the moment he goes to stand up and run away, he puts your hands on his shoulders. He can't even swing at you. Yeah. And you just put some weight back down. And if you feel like you need to, you just keep a hand on his shoulder. And if he starts to move, you go, don't do that, mate. I don't want you. We'll put you in the car and lock you in there. You're here. Here, have a bottle of water. You're here at our grace. You're, you're in this position because we're allowing that. Please just do the right thing. Yeah. 
So this is what gets me about what people say about, uh, you know, well, he obviously didn't intend the guy to die. I agree. He um, felt like he wasn't doing anything wrong. Yeah, okay. But go back to his training. There are other things that you can do. You don't have the right to use force if you have another option available. So the way I teach use of force is you have all these options, communication and environmental you know, management and closing and locking doors to keep them in here. Mm. If, if I'm under arrest and I'm handcuffed and seated, seated in this chair and you can lock the doors to stop me getting out of this room, you don't need hands-on because what am I going to do? Stand up, run around and headbutt walls and things like that. Well, that's only doing me damage. And I, I hope that there's something comes out of this, if anything good, because let's face it, that was the spark that set off the, the keg of frustration and, and everything yep. that's going on over there. Yep. You know, whether racial frustrations, the pandemic, the deaths, man, so much going on. And, and that was a spark. What I found disappointing as well was his offside is not stepping in. And I, and I, and I get, you know, there's a... It's a young about, fella. We, we talk about the, you know, the, the, the code, that we've got to back each other up. But we've also got to be responsible for our action or inaction. Yeah. A tap on the shoulder. All right, let's, you know, jump off. We'll, we'll do it. Yeah. We'll get him in the car. Yeah. You know, so at the time, they're going to look at that and, and go, well, he was the senior guy. If he was, I don't know. Um, we don't want to get in front, we don't want to undermine his authority in front of this crowd that's forming. Yeah. But maybe there's a lesson there that, that you've got to work as a team. And, and you said before, having your partner there, the strength of the team, it's that symbiotic relationship. That's right. Um, and that synergy that you and I are, are, are better than one plus one. Yes, correct. So we have to be able to step up and say, all right, man, come on. We've done jobs before in raids where we get a little bit tunnel vision and we start in that way and suddenly your partner grabs your belt and goes well back. Yeah. You know, because we're getting ahead of the team or we're getting a little bit tunnel visioned or getting a little bit of this angst with the guy. And, you know, you grab the guy's belt and go, hey, come back with me. Whoa, up a sec. That's right. You know, there's that, there's that teamwork and that training. So maybe something good will come out of that that people will now go, he's not doing the right thing. I will step in and, yeah. and do something about it. I think you're right. I think there has to be... And possibly what will come out of it is um, a greater understanding of the way they should be training their tactics, the way they should be training their engagement with members of the public and the way they should be training their teammanship mm. and, uh, in those moments that, um, you know, I often will say to organisations that have a completely misrepresented view of what police are all about, even coppers at times, as a police member, I recall that um, my, my role very much was to identify a crime or a breach of some uh, legislation, regulation, etc. That's my role, the first thing, is to identify or be told about, go to this area, this potential crime taking place. When I get there, do I observe that there has actually been that? Can I find a nexus between the crime that's been committed and an offender? Okay. My job now is to take that offender to explain my rationale in what's called a brief of evidence, to pass all the two of them together, the offender and the brief, and to push it to prosecutions, and then to turn my mind back and my eyes back to the next, to the road for the next breach of the codes. Mm. It's not to go, I now need to somehow discriminate, I need to somehow lower this person's life 
his dignity in any way to, I don't need to have a negative impact on him beyond the fact that I've removed his liberty, his freedom by arresting him or her or whoever they are. And I've brought them to a police station in handcuffs potentially. And we've sat them down for hours at a time while we gather evidence and interview them. And I'm shuffling them off and requiring, maybe they've been placed on bail, maybe they've been remanded, but they're now required to go and front up at a court where their accusations are put to them. That's my, that, that's enough for me. So I pass all that and I go next, Oop, another crook, another brief of evidence, prosecution's next. I don't need to worry about any of the thing that takes place. That's someone else's job. Mm. I fit in a, I'm a cog in a large machine, including legislators. I don't write the, I don't write the legislation. I don't even write the policies in the police departments and the, and the department itself and the individual stations. I do the executing part of it, the nabbing. Then I don't do any prosecuting and I don't do any decision-making. I'm, you know, I'm not a court. I'm not even a member of a jury on that, that little cog at that moment. And that's what I think he was forgetting is that you don't need excessive force to do your job. You don't need hatred of a race to do your job. You you're don't need... Judge Dredd. That's you're not, right. You're not judge, jury and executioner. And this is where, you know, and we've all been guilty of it, where it's almost the ego gets in the way. That's right. And you are familiar with the term that we use is you, you have the last word, I have the last action. That's right. And this is where, especially when we were younger, I imagine things haven't changed much now. You'd get a, a bloke on the street, go off at you, mm -hmm. and it would roll you up. Mm -hmm. These days, you know, come what you want. Boy, you can't find anything new. doesn't worry. Yeah, that's right. But it's all wisdom. It'd be mouth off, and you'd think, I've got to deal with this. Yeah. There was a video um, a little while, maybe last couple of days, uh, American police officer, writing a citation out and that guy right. was in his ear and he did a great job. Yeah, you hosted that. Yeah, a little, oh, little bit towards the end, the guy was getting to him. Uh, the guy just kept at him and at him and at him and at him and at him. He kept his cool. And, and a lot of comments are, should punch him in the mouth. And, you know what, you, you can't do that because you're not allowed to do that. Emotionally, you want to do it? Oh, hell yeah. I'm listening to this, this spree kid, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And the cop is keeping his cool. And it was the old thing, like there's a traffic stop or anything, mate. You keep talking, I'll keep writing. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Here's another one. But you've got to understand, like you said, where you fit into things. You know, sometimes you don't get your man on the day. You're not like the Mounties. No, that's you right. Know, you don't always get your man. But <laughs> and, and one of the things working in your local district, your, your divvy van was, but you're in my patch. Yeah. And I might not get you today, but I've got my eye on you. Yeah. And it'll come around. Yeah, that's right. Now, we know that the justice system is often no justice. Mm -hmm. And it works two ways. Mm -hmm. Sometimes there's um, things that, you know, that are too heavy, like you know people that maybe should be given a portion or looked at why they're here should be given a break. Yes. But then there's sometimes things where you go, really, you got off with a good behaviour bond? That's atrocious behaviour. Yeah, yeah. So often we say there's no justice in the justice system, but your job is to put them there. It's yeah, that's not right. a perfect system. Yeah. But it's a shite load better than what's around the world. Yeah, I think that's that's exactly the point. You people focus too much on what they can't control. So you, why worry about what you have no concern over? You know, my job. And if I want to change, if I was really concerned about the legislation, and, and there are avenues that I can take, I can become more learned in policy making, and I can start to push things towards the policy makers. If I want to do that. 
Um, I, you can start a petition on Facebook. I can start a... Mm, mm. <laughs> but, you know, it's interesting because even if you do start a petition on Facebook, if I got 20 or 30,000 people going, yes, then that would be worthwhile. Mm. So it is something at least. I can even placard out the local minister's office. But what I can't do as a police member is spend all my days going, you are only going to get a smack on the wrist at court, so I'm going to give you an extra smacking today. It has nothing to do with you. So, yeah, to, to wrap up that conversation, I just think that if, we, if people understand and if they better understood the role of policing, where they fit in the machinery and the difference between who you are as a human and who you are as when you put the cop hat on, and then just go and do what we're asking you to do as a cop. I say this a lot in my training. If I said to you, I'm going to pay you five bucks if you would take this chair out and put it in the back of my car. If you take that chair, will I pay you five bucks? Well, possibly not because the contract between us was take this chair and put it in my car. Now, there might be a reason for that but you've breached the contract between us, the employment contract. If I said, take this cup of coffee out there and you took my bottle of water, you, you're breaching the contract. As a member of police, you're being hired to do what I described earlier. You, you're hired to be that cog, not that cog, not that cog, not that one, that one. Just do that. Stop trying to be everything else or quit. Go and do And And the other thing for me, frustrating, if you join to be that cog in the machine, stop being a crook. I mean, don't, don't, don't steal, don't assault people, don't beat people at home. Mm -hmm. You know, the thing on television the other day, don't beat your missus up, don't steal staff, don't be fraudulent, don't, don't be visiting child porn, don't do that ever, regardless whether you're a copper. Don't do most of those things if you're a copper. But Jesus, <laughs> if you're a copper, stop. You're either... Be, be one or don't be one, but don't be a crooked cop, for God's no. sake. Go and be a crook. There was just, like you said, finalised I can't remember. I think it might have been one of the one of the New York sheriff's office, like higher up. He said it really well. Are police perfect? No, because they're people. Yeah. But they're excellent. As a general rule, that's right. Police in Victoria, police in particular, because that's my experience, are excellent at their job. Yeah. They're well trained. I think better trained than ever yeah. because they have such a scope of things they have to deal with. Yeah. Um, and to be honest, you know, you know, like I do, that 99%, given that you know, 87% of statistics are made up on the spot, that the vast majority of police are genuine good people who want to help. That's right. And the Under ones, trying circumstances. Absolutely. One hand tied behind their back half the time. Yeah. And the ones that step outside that boundary and become a crook, I don't care if you wear the blue or carry a badge, you're a crook. Yeah, that's right. And I've got no issue. I would, I would have no issue if there was an extra offence for breaching your duty of care and your, and your oath. Yeah, breaching that cog. Mm. You are in breach of your cog, sunshine. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's it, cog conversation done. Cog conversation over, well done. So tell me about MABS. Um, conscious uh, of the of your time here, it's, we're, we're pushing two hours, but the oh, conversation's been Like it really brief. Okay, brief. How did I get into the MABS? Yeah, Martial arts business success. Say that three times quickly and get better than I got. Then like I'm Martial arts business against Martial arts. Yeah, good. So Mabs was, um, was the brainchild of a lady called Michelle Hex, um, who's a, a good friend of mine. And initially we met, um, I, started, I did some business coaching under her. Yeah. She's very good at what she does. She's a very passionate martial artist, a very high-end taekwondo practitioner when she was running her clubs. 
Um, and I did I did a seminar under her about, you know, just tweaking our adult program a little bit, how to get more adults involved. Really worked well together. Yeah. Fast forward a couple of years, she got in touch with me and said, I'm running this group, Martial Arts Business Success, but partly because um, she felt because she was female and, and you know, she was styles, she only had done one style of martial arts, but yeah. she was having trouble connecting with different areas of other martial arts. Yeah. With Kando, you know, we, we play around with the BJJ a bit. We know some MMA guys. We do some Filipino stuff. We try to be friendly everywhere. Mm. She said, do you want to come on board? Spoke to my wife, who, as usual, cuts to the, the chase really, really well, and said, what what's, do you think? Michelle's asked me to do this. And what's she said, in it for you? Well, she said, you're doing it for nothing anyway. Every time you go out, you talk to people about martial arts. Interesting. You enjoy it. You might as well get paid for it. Nice. <laughs> so started off together doing that. Um, a short time later, Michelle said, look, it's not what I'm passionate about anymore. Okay. I want to move on to more working with um, female entrepreneurs, which she's done so well in. Really? And she said, do you want to take it over or should we close it down? And I remember at the time, a couple of good friends of mine had been running the club for you know, 20, 30 years, sitting on 50 students, couldn't, you know, couldn't make ends meet, they're working two jobs. And the catalyst for it was you know what, these are good instructors. Yeah. I mean, really good instructors. Yeah. Why aren't they making ends meet? Yeah. It doesn't sit well with me, so I'll take it over. You know, interestingly, we, we were speaking yesterday with a couple of friends. Some of the, I guess, the founders, you'd say, of martial arts in Australia struggle. Yeah, like they, they rent a room, they, they get loaned a car. Yeah. And to me, that's not right. You know, and, and, and martial arts as a business, there can be, I believe, there can be that that melding of having a good business and a strong club. Yeah, so so you don't believe in that traditional thing that says a, a uh, an appropriate martial artist is one who doesn't charge for his uh, no. services? The, a friend of mine I used to train with a little bit a while ago, quite a while ago, he was sort of jujitsu based. He was the probably the, the only true not-for-profit I've ever dealt with. He paid $40 a night for his hall. Yep. If five of us turned up, we paid $8 each. If eight of us turned up, we paid $5 each. It was not-for-profit money money. What I can give with a, a, a professional business approach is I can give my students a full-time club, you know, yeah. matter there is. And this is a conversation that 10 years ago was probably more contentious. I think these days people see it for what it is. You know, I, can, I have professional instructors who do instructor development. We, we full-time, so we go and train in other styles. We, do, we, we develop ourselves as teachers, not just as practitioners. Yeah. Um, ultimately, the market will decide if you're worthwhile or not. Yeah, well, this is... I think one of the things that people forget, and, and let's put martial arts into context. You've been in the game for 36 years, right? So and I'm, a, I'm a similar amount. I think I'm uh, my 40th year next year. I'm a, we're both current sixth, you're a sixth Dan, right? So I'm a, a sixth degree black belt in Kempo. So in Kempo, they, they label each one American terms, well, English terms, so there's not the Xi'an and, the, and all of those that go through in junior instructor and instructor and senior instructor and blah, blah, blah. When you get to sixth degree, the, the sentiment is you've done enough in the martial arts to be called a professor of the arts. Mm -hmm. So as a sixth degree, I am a professor of Kempo. Now, a professorship in any tertiary education uh, aspect, they'd potentially done 10 years, you know? Mm. So I, I would be as knowledgeable in Kempo, I would dare to say, 
easily as knowledgeable in Kenpo as a professor of most tertiary subjects. And yet a professor would go into a school and demand, you know, a, a pay scale commensurate with their years in service and their education. And yet nobody's going to say you've done 36 years of martial arts. Each year, which has been an education, there's no doubt that you've, there's no, there's no even question that you've continued learning. So why should you not be allowed or even thought of in the same vein and expected to go and charge that same amount of money? So if somebody says to me, you know, I would like private lessons, I tell them exactly what I charge up front. Why? Because I've nearly done 40 years of this and because I'm ranked as a professor in Kempo and because I'm worth it. And if you don't think so, then go down the road to the guy teaching guitar and you'll find that he is charging about the same amount. Go and get a lawyer and see what they're charging for a phone call. Mm -hmm. Go and have a 17-year-old teach his new kid how to swim. Correct. So you, you, you do any of those things, you're going to pay for it. <clears throat> Why should I not, at nearly 40 years, expect a commensurate amount with that, where, where I believe my knowledge base for the art would be same as a person for whatever subject they know about. And, and I don't think people think that way, including martial artists. This guy who is the perfect non, not-for-profit, he's forgetting his time is valuable. Yeah. When you turn up and teach for an hour and a half at a school hall, yes, your students have paid you rent, but have they paid for your time and your knowledge that you spent hard years of blood, sweat and tears to learn and all of this incredible wealth of information you just are brimming with, why, why would anybody expect that's not, that doesn't come with a money value? Yeah, and I think, um, you know, we charge a reasonable amount of our clubs. The market sets the value a little bit. Uh, the club we're in now, we're, we're downsizing a little bit. Between the pandemic and a lot of things, we've decided that we don't want to be clumpy. We want to bring it back to, you know, around about 400 members. So we've gone from two buildings into one. But we've actually redone our fee structure and made it cheaper. Yeah. So we've Good. dropped our fees. Yeah. Because the philosophy behind us still is we want you to come and train. Yeah. You know, and, and we were talking before, here's the desk, there's the front door, there's the mats. Make a choice. Yeah, make a choice. Make a choice. Yeah. You know, don't train or train. Yeah. But so it's not, my, my thing is it's not about the money. Yeah. And, and money. what's interesting in that is you, one of the choices is not stand here and negotiate pricing and Correct. terms with me because, uh, you know, this is what we charge. But yeah, and you know, whether you charge, like I said, I think we're kind of mid range as people a lot more expensive, people a lot cheaper. Whatever you charge, be worth it. That's, that's the key. Nice. Now, does it, does every club have to be a full time club? Absolutely not. No. There's no right or wrong here. Yeah. But I think the stigma of having a full-time club has, has dissipated to a certain extent. Yeah. Um, you know, the we start off being, you know, reasonably good practitioners generally. We become reasonably good instructors, you know, to, to degrees. But then there's this third part of how to run a business. Now, when I started my club up just before that, working at the Force Response Unit blew my knee out training. Yeah. Um, and had been training heaps with my instructor. Um, doing lots of cool stuff in, in the police force, blew my knee out, got stuck in an office answering phones, uh, bought out of a gourd. Yeah. Fast forward a few, few weeks when I was on crutches, had the knee brace on, went down to my instructor and said, I'm bored, stupid. Can I, I can't train, but can I come and help out? And he said, Yeah, come on the mat. So 
on the crutches for the first few weeks and then just the brace. And one day he says, oh, there's a place down the road to make a good club. Do you want to open up a club? And I go, oh, yeah, well, that sounds like fun. How hard could it be? You know, fast forward 30 years. And, <laughs> and I got in there and had no freaking idea what to do. You know, I was, a, I was a pretty good martial artist. I was a pretty good teacher. I didn't know how to run a club. Yeah, that's right. So we, we signed this lease up. We're paying our money uh, after, I think we had a 15-month lease on the first one. At 12 months, we've got like 18 students. You know, we're just we're shelling money out hand and fist. Yeah. You know, I'm really good at bag work and, and carto because I was there by myself half the time. Yeah. No one taught us how to do anything. There's that, that third element of being a business owner because we think we can run a martial arts club. You're a technician in the old uh, e-myth. Yeah, absolutely right. So then tried this amazing new concept called advertising, Ooh. you know, which was a matter of we've got, you know, $2,000 left in the account. Let's buy some pamphlets and walk around. This is pre-internet days. Yeah. And suddenly people started coming in. This could be like. interesting. You know, fast forward a little while, I got into a bit of a, a level, got a um, business mentor, uh, a bloke from Sydney, bought out some American guys from, from a mob called Maya. Great weekend away. Um, Expensive weekend for back then. It was like two thousand dollars, and we're talking, I don't know, fifteen years ago. Yeah. And what their their pitch or their sale was at the end was to introduce business mentoring, martial arts business mentoring to Australia. Yeah. And I remember fifteen hundred bucks a month. It was US, and fifteen years ago. And I remember ringing up Elle, my wife, and it's only been twice ever, ever, that she's admitted I was right and she was wrong, which is probably pretty true. <laughs> And I remember saying, Look, this is really good because we're, we're hitting a plateau. We had young kids, um, the club's busy, I'm working six days a week at the club, full-time police force, burnt out. So she said, don't sign up, we don't have the money, we can't afford it. And she was absolutely correct. And I get home from the weekend and I think like most husbands have experienced, I walk in with that look. <laughs> and she said, you signed up. And I went, I signed up. So I invested in something I couldn't afford but I also, in my mind, invested in something I couldn't afford not to have because I was stuck with a foot in the police force, a foot in the club, and I was just didn't know where to go. Yeah, and they and they get further apart, so you end up doing the splits. Yeah, and, and you know, young kids. Um, the way if I could go back in time and do it again, I would do it so differently. You know, the kids just took a second place where they shouldn't have. Um, Wouldn't you do that with everything? No, I mean, I, we have to be. We're all smart, hindsight. Yeah. I mean, wisdom only comes with age and experience. So you can't be wise as a 20-year-old. And uh, when you first open your martial arts club, we're all dumb. I mean, I'll, I look back now and I would make all sorts of changes. And I think it needs to be said, I still run one of those tiny little clubs, make no money. Um, but you love it. I love it. Um, and, you know, there's always been that balance for me about my day job and my business that I'm running. Mm. And how much of that am I willing to sacrifice in order to build a bigger club? And I've always said, not a lot. Mm. And so that, that's really the only reason I've never really said to myself, if, if I was still in the police force, maybe that would have been. Whereas I went and did something different, you went and formed a martial arts group. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, we've, we've both gone in different paths, but we both did the same thing. We juggled two businesses for a little while, or a business with police, and then we both left to do our business. And we followed our passion. I mean, your, your passion is with the conflict management, the training is something that's taken you to some amazing places. Yeah. And, and look, if I can give some advice to the club owners out there, treat your business like you do your martial arts. 
Yeah. Don't, it baffles me to, in this day and age that someone thinks they can open up a club with no business training, no equity, yeah. you know, no nothing behind them. I'm going to open up a club. Why is it not working? Yeah. You know, no it's like saying you're going, to, you're going to be a martial artist without an instructor. Yeah. You just choose a, a venue, put some mats on the floor and go, why aren't I a martial artist? Yeah. Build it and they will come. No, no, it doesn't work. No. And there's no excuse these days. Even if you don't want to spend money on education, which, you know, obviously I, I run a coaching thing, so I, I have my opinion on that. Yeah. There's so much free stuff online. You know, you can find almost anything. There is no excuse not to build your club. Yeah. And one thing I'll say, though, if, you're not, if your club's not building, especially after a number of years, look at you and look on the mats. Correct. Because yeah. if you're not a good teacher, just by being, being a good teacher, organically people will come to your word of mouth. Correct. If you can't keep them, look there first. Yeah. But... You know, I look at martial arts club owners who'll spend $300 for a seminar on a carter or $200 on a, a seminar on a spider guard, but won't go to a business seminar or won't invest in doing like a, a short course on how to do their zero book work. Man, you've got to set your goals. And Leadership and training and uh, yeah. being a, a good coach and being, you know, those sorts of things. You're with kids. It pays then to go and to, to become how how to engage with kids and you know how to be a leader for your leadership group who are now running these amazing schools for you it pays to go and be coached in how to be a good leader and i know you've had some of that as well and and then all of the bookkeeping and the business acumen and marketing side of things yeah so you're 100 percent right and and um given that there is so much information out there mainly at mabs martial arts groups uh so on that note then how do people get in touch with you to build their business to help them grow uh how, what's the best way to contact you all right uh you can usually get me through facebook either through me personally paul Veldman, or there's a facebook page uh paul Veldman, martial arts business coach the free maps group is called building a martial arts legacy there's a heap of free information in there drop me a message um you know my big thing is we'll have a chat we'll pick up the phone we'll have a yarn work out what your goals are and if we can work together, great. But if not, you know, there's, there's, I can point you in the direction of some things that you can access. You know, yeah. Really cheap, if not free. Yeah. Um, we run a bunch of free webinars and things. You know, with the with the pandemic opening up, we do yeah. a free webinar at the start. How we're going to gear towards it. How we're going to come out of it. There's there's heaps out there. Well, I've got to tell you, from from my perspective, running a tiny club, I've got heaps out of it. So, um, you know, I, I went to that Titans seminar mm. it was a weekend. Absolutely loved it. Went home and implemented a bunch of stuff, not to grow the business, but just because it made what I was currently doing better. Yep. I get online all the time. I see your posts and I go, whoops, that's a great document. I need that. Or, you know, you'll be up on the whiteboard writing some stuff and I'll go, 100%, I should talk like that. So, yeah. So, um, or you'll go, hang on, I taught him that. <laughs> <laughs> very rarely. Very rarely. Oh, very rarely, mate. No worry about that. No, so, Tondra and Hammers still gets a good, a good spot in our classes. Tondra and Hammers. Tondra and Hammers. <laughs> so, yeah. So, um, guys, I can really uh, say, uh, hand on heart, contact Paul if you want some uh, very easygoing professional advice about the club. And, uh, mate, it's always a pleasure to chat with you. And with this, we... we Dove into a couple of topics, but there's so many more, and I look forward to maybe doing this again if you're. Yeah, thanks, man. Uh, you're I think it. it'd be great. And we've obviously got uh, other times when you and I are going to be sitting together and uh, chatting with other prominent martial artists. So I look forward to that as well. 100%. Thanks, brother. Brilliant. Cool. I loved it. Thank thanks, you. mate. Good on thanks, you guys. Thanks for having us. Take care.